Welcome back to another episode of Jeducation, where parenting and Jewish education merge. This week we have the zechus, the pleasure to learn from Rabbi Moshe Benevitz, the director of NCSY Kolel, the managing director of NCSY, and Rebbe at Reshit. Rabbi Benevitz has such a strong pulse on education, inspiration, directing and managing one of the most inspirational and amazing summer experiences, and a true understanding into the mind of the youth. Rabbi Benevitz touches on so many fascinating and integral points for educators and parents, like the importance of getting out of the way of our students and and sometimes our children, how to parent when dealing with children going through struggles, and how to parent when children are not going through struggles. Rabbi Benevitz discusses the key components to making NCSY Kolo so successful, as well as his experience of parenting through Aliyah and the advice he would give to new Olim. Rabbi Benevitz has a hot take on waking children or campers up, which is really spot on, as well as his approach towards handling the difficulties of tefillah and how it is intertwined with Emuna and how to break down the three elements of Emuna as he sees it. This episode is jam-packed with a so many amazing nuggets of wisdom, especially Rabbi Benevitz's important book recommendation at the end. If you have questions and if you have any ideas of what you'd like to hear, really appreciate the feedback that we've been getting and the ideas that we've been getting as to how to be able to continue to give you great education advice. But if you have any ideas, please feel free to reach out on our website, jeducation.org, or you know, follow us on Instagram, Twitter. Send us a message there, and you know, we'd love to hear. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear the feedback. Before we get to the episode, I'd like to thank our sponsor, my good friend, performance and executive coach Bennett Schwartz. If you're feeling like you can't really pass a certain hurdle in life, you keep getting analysis paralysis. You want to build confidence, or you just want to stop living that default life of yours and start living the creative life you've always desired. Bennett is here to help. Being a performance and executive coach, Bennett helps high performers reach their goals while achieving the quality of life that they want on their terms. He'll work on tools and techniques week in and week out with you to help you make that breakthrough in your life. Whether you're a college student looking to set your future up in the best possible way or a CEO of a company who is looking to manage their time, Bennett can help. Feel free to reach out to him via email at Bennett, which is spelled B-E-N-N-E-T-T, at aninsidelookpodcast.com. Or check the check out the show notes below. If you want to learn more about coaching with Bennett, reference this podcast to get a free initial call for your experience in the power of coaching. Without further ado, enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Jeducation Podcast. My name is Yetir Manchel. Jeducation, where parenting and Jewish education merge to give our children the best possible experience. Whether you chose to be an educator by profession or not, we are all Jewish educators. Day in and day out in our own homes, we are educating our children on what it means to be a Jew, what it means to be a good person. And sometimes, perhaps most of the time, the education children receive in their homes is more impactful than the formal education they receive in school. Check us out at jeducation.org today and remember to subscribe to the podcast. This week's guest is Rabbi Moshe Benevitz. Rabbi Benevitz is a respected, dynamic Jewish educator and professional for more than 20 years. Rabbi Benevitz has been the director of NCSY Kolel and has become a role model for thousands of teens around the world. Knowing the crucial role that NCSY Kolel plays in the Jewish community, Rabbi Benevitz puts his heart and soul into every aspect of the summer, while at the same time, he puts in a lot of time at Yeshiva Reshit in Ramat Beit Shemesh, where he is a Rebbe. And before that, while he was in America, he was, the, he was a Rebbe and director of student activities at DRS, Halps High School for Boys, and at MTA as well taught at MTA and also at the Breer High School for Girls in Elizabeth, New Jersey. 
Most recently, Rabbi Benowitz took on an even greater role in NCSY, being appointed as the managing director of NCSY while maintaining his role with NCSY Coal. Suffice it to say, you are a very, very busy person, and I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your very brief trip here into New York, into America, to talk to education. It is a pleasure. Very, very exciting initiative and project you have here, and thrilled to be a part of it. Really appreciate it. So, first things first, what inspired you to go into Jewish education in the first place? It's such a uh, it's such a great question. Like many, uh, I certainly had role models who inspired me to to be able to give to others. I saw the the joy and the satisfaction they got out of being part of inspiring a Jewish future and, and affecting lives in that way. Um, and that certainly played a, a big role in it. I, I've always been, and uh, hard to say this without sounding you know, a little bit pretentious with it, but it was genuinely true, is that I, I've always been enamored with, with doctors um, and with anybody who, who plays a role in, in helping other people. I remember I actually majored in psychology Hmm. Um, and had some degree of, of interest in the field of psychology. But I mean, that you were was, thinking at one point. For sure I was, right. and that, that itself was motivated not, not as much by my interest in the field of psychology, but more in my interest in, in people. It's so interesting. I had the same exact thing. and relating to yeah, them. Same exact um, thing. It's you know, so interesting. I remember I, I once had a sort of friend who went through a, a particularly strong personal trauma uh, and I remember feeling rather helpless in terms of, you know, turns out in retrospect, just being his friend and probably some of his right. peer group were more helpful than, than any mental health professionals right, could be. Right, for sure. uh, but um, I, I remember being envious of anybody who, who had the ability to help and to, so and as I, I think that was, that was part of my wish list and aspirations that I would be lucky enough to do something that, that could play a role in making other people's lives better and, and enhancing them in a way and making a contribution like that. I remember in a similar way, there was one of the, one I think it was one of the Florida hurricanes. And uh, I remember reading in the news that they, they were sending a team of psychologists down there and, you know, psychologists don't have hammers and psychologists right, right, don't right. have, you know, buckets of money, but they were just going to be walking around and helping people who had, you know, so in many ways that, that really is what motivated me. Um, you know, I felt that, and I had experienced it and seen it, how, how the right kind of teacher and the right types of schools and the right type of, of chinuch environments could be so helpful to a person. So what propelled you to do that as opposed to psychology, I guess? And, I mean, so, look, thousands so, of people are, are yeah. you know, better off because of it, but I'm, I'm curious why. So the, the safest answer to probably give, which has a strong element of truth to it, is that I was raised by my parents and I, I've often advised people with this also, that, that to go into a, a profession like education, like chinuch, because it is noble, is, is only half correct as an answer. Mm -hmm. You have to be really good at the profession that you choose to go to as well, independent of its nobility. So I don't think my parents would have endorsed or allowed me to go into chinuch for noble pursuits. They only allowed me to do it if it matched my professional acumen and skills and, right, and was, right. you know, can make a compelling case that that's what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, in this world. Mm -hmm. um, and to do that. that, that's the way that I was raised. And that's still the way that I advise people who are making decisions about it. I've never been on board the chinuch or bust or the world right. needs you. And that's got to be the sole thing that motivates you. If there are multiple ways, you know, so, and, and I think that's what it is. I, and as I think I felt I could be a better teacher than I could be a psychologist. So mm -hmm. when you put those two things together and they both had a, a strong degree of interacting with people and being able to provide a value add to other people's lives, what, what greater 
Sipa could there possibly be than that, than feeling that you've made somebody else's life or some a situation better than it was before you you interacted with right. it? Well, I could say personally, as having attended NCSY Cole, worked on NCSY Cole, and having been really inspired and affected by many of your shirim, I'm happy that you uh, chose that. So that's great. That's very kind of you to say. Yeah, halavai, halavai, it should be true. So you mentioned before that uh, you have some, there were some, some of those were role models who led you to, you know, entertain that more. Well, who are some of those role, role models? Uh, many, many. And, and, you know, not to be cliche and I don't want to list them, you know, I will list them. So, <laughs> you know, no worries there. Uh, but, you know, I would for sure leave them out. Um I, I have been fascinated by the magic of, of teachers and how they could teach. Um, but uh, certainly he's been a guest on your podcast and he happens to be my brother-in-law, but, but Rabbi Kamenetsky, I attended um, when I was in the sixth grade. There was a between Mincha and Marv Shear here in, in not far from where we're recording this right now. Uh, we're in Bergenfield right now and it was in, in Teaneck right. in, in the B'nai Yashur. Yeah. You know, youth minion basement. Uh, yeah. youth his father, his basement. father like ran that for years. Yeah, the yeah. minion. So he, he, Rabbi Kamenetsky uh, Jr., Rabbi Israel Kamenetsky, who's now my brother-in-law, he gave a, a Gemara Shir. Um, and it was the first time I was exposed to that power of teaching. He was, at the time, in high school. Uh, but, wow. you know, he might as well have been a gadolador as far as I was concerned. Right, at right. Time. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and that, he, he remains and has been, you know, one of the, you know, I, I believe he's one of the great educators of our generation uh, and certainly had, as he has had on, on so many others, a deep and profound impact on my life there. Wow. Many of my so rebellion cool. uh, that I had. Um, it's cool that like you can say that about also he's like your brother-in-law. Yes, very cool. yes, yes, yes. It is uh, it's definitely cool. It's definitely a bracha, uh, something that I, I don't take for granted and that I, I appreciate uh, a, a great deal. Um, you know, some of the most notable standout uh, teachers that inspired me when I was an MTA included Rabbi Dulitz, who I never mm. had as a as a formal Rebbe, but had a had him as an English teacher actually, and he had a, a massive influence and also exposed me a little bit to that magic and to that potential that could exist inside a, a classroom. I, I think I fell in love with classrooms. I was never in Rabbi Kamenetsky's classroom, right. but I think I fell in love with classrooms a little bit more. Uh, with uh, with Rabbi Dulitz uh, and then Karen Biavna, certainly Rav Blachman had a mm, sure. had a deep and strong influence. Um, Doctor Joshua Bacon, who was a teacher that mm. I had for psychology, generally cool. he teaches in Stern, teaches in Stern. Right, right. I was lucky enough when I was in YU that he was there, uh, and he also had a had a particularly way of teaching that that captivated me always, and and That's I so try to emulate in a lot of ways. I feel uh, like you don't necessarily always hear that with college professors, per se. Yeah. So that's interesting. That's cool. You, you know, there are people who are masters of their craft, and 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 whatever it is, I, I, I've always had a, a great deal of admiration for people who have that degree of commitment, and, you know, whether they're car mechanics or or professors of, of literature, or they are doctors, or, or, you know, there are people who are really dedicated to their, to their craft. I remember speaking years ago to a, a friend of mine, we were both going into Chinuch around the same time, and and he was asking for you know what are the most important things to try to do you know if you want to be a better teacher. Mm -hmm. And I remember just instinctively telling him, and I still believe it to be true to this day, that that asking that question is more important than ah, any specific answer. Nice. Being dedicated to your craft and and you know spending time thinking about how can I be a better practitioner of this craft. It's a little bit related to what I said about about the way that I was raised by my parents. 
um, in terms of, you know, the nobility of it doesn't guarantee that you're going to be good at it. Right, right. And even your your um, affinity for it and your love for it doesn't guarantee that you're going to be good for it. In fact, sometimes that passion can get in the way of your mm. being good at it. Right. You have to have a certain sense of discipline and dedication to your craft. And and I've admired those and were influenced greatly by those who who, who did it. Uh, you know, the, the, the naturally charismatic, so you could admire them also, and you could certainly be inspired by them, but you're not necessarily gonna get as much to emulate if, right. you know, you're not naturally- If you're not that, right. Correct, <laughs> right, but, right. but you can certainly get it from people who you see are dedicated to their craft and have kind of honed that, that skill to a great degree. Hmm. Interesting. That's such a such a great point. What would you say is the best advice that you received over the years for either for chinuch or shifting a little bit for parenting? Yeah, um, I, I'll I'll start with in chinuch for sure, and and I actually think it is it's related to. It, it comes from two kind of different extremes of unexpected sources um, in that regard. Um, and maybe I would give three sources. The One of them would be um, not super unexpected at all. Uh, but one of them is a Torah, uh, which I would certainly count, and I, I am proud to count as as Eitza, meaning it's not always a mm -hmm. late night conversation or, or something that you know you hear on a, on a TED talk, uh, but sometimes you can, you can read a, a piece of Torah, you can read a Rashi on Chumash, and, and maybe we'll get back to that a little bit later. But uh, there, there, there is a Torah that Rav Kook has about the Avodah of Tefillah, um, that he writes that people think, especially because of some of our motions during Kadosh, 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 where we kind of, you know, pick ourselves up to emulate the angels a little bit mm -hmm. on, on, our, right. on our tippy toes, People think that the avodah of tefillah is analogous to rocket propulsion, that we are kind of grounded down below and we need to elevate ourselves uh, above. And that's a lovely metaphor, and, and he's correct, that people think that that is what the avodah of tefillah is. It's, right. it's strapping yourself onto this rocket launcher and, and heading up to the heavens if you're lucky enough to summon up the, the kavan and the intensity to do so. But he suggests that that's not really the most apt metaphor and that's not really what it is. What it really is, is identifying in your own being the helium balloon that is naturally inclined upwards and removing the barriers and the weights mm. that are holding it down. Wow. Because he suggests it's, it's less rocket launcher, right. launcher and more unpacking, more removing. Wow. You know, those kind of barriers. So insightful. It is, huh. it's an amazing insight about tefillah, yeah. and it's also an amazing insight into tefillah, into chinuch. Some, sometimes in, in chinuch, the best things we can do is, is get out of the way and to facilitate obstacles being removed from the natural growth process of a, of, of a student. And, and that's, it's so important to remember that. Let things, let things grow. Uh, Ruf Zinger, who would be a, a fourth kind of source, I didn't say mm -hmm. the, the two middle ones right, yet, right. Uh, and certainly unexpected ones, but Ruf Dov Zinger, uh, in, in what is arguably his most famous um, essay and piece, I know it's been translated into English also, he speaks about the value of space in, in teaching in a classroom. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we suffocate when we teach. Sometimes we provide so much and we're act, we think we're helping when we're actually we're actually stunting. We're right. actually intervening in what is a very natural and organic growth process. What would be in like an example of that? So I can give you many, uh, and we'll try not to be too specific because I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to in indict, you know, anybody there. But sure. I think there are schools, institutions, and classrooms where the teacher looms so large 
um, not only because of a charismatic personality, but because of an approach where they where they absolutely fill every space in the room. Interesting. When we dictate the type of growth that our students are supposed to have, when we are overly um, not protective, but we're overly insistent on you know do this, do this, do this. When when we give those detailed instructions, we don't give room for them to figure out when we don't allow for time for contemplation and reflection on the things that we say where we're doing a podcast right now. And I even asked you before we started recording what your approach is to, you know, to dead air and do you edit that out? You know, there's another approach with, uh, you know, that many would take, which is that dead air could be, you know, the best part of a podcast, you know, just think, yeah, few, few people recording podcasts have the guts, nor would they be allowed to do that (laughs) because you're not going to get that many likes when, (laughs) when, you know, you have 45 minutes and 43 of them are dead air. But as an educational experience, that would be (laughs) the best. If you could ever have three minutes of such an idea and that allowed 43 minutes of space for the idea to grow and effective, you'd have something, you know, really magical. Not sure it would be a commercial This morning specifically with my class, I taught them this idea from Sefer Olam Havoda about what is our whole entire like goal here and 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 you know getting to Olam Haba and what is Olam Haba all about. And I taught it, and it was such a deep idea that I said, I "Just want to stop for a second, just think about it." And I, everyone was like, "Sound, no one knew what to do with themselves." But it was so interesting to see that as they started, like you saw, you saw them starting to think and contemplate and process it, and then all their hands started going up. And like, right. I want to, I want to ask you questions on that. I want right. to understand it better. So. It's interesting. I, I've I've almost never done that. I happen to have done it this morning, right. and it was it was great. It was an amazing yeah, no, more, experience. More power to you for that. We, we we don't allow for space, and we don't allow for for growth enough. And and again, I I'll be critical without being specific of it. There are places that just don't give that space, and and they are taking that rocket propulsion. You know, mm-hmm. that's what they're assuming their job is as a teacher. If you if 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 you strap yourself to me, I'll take you on this amazing ride and journey. And, and there are many problems with that approach. One of the problems is what happens when that ride ends. And, mm, you know, right. if, if you haven't taught the skill and allowed for that natural and organic growth process, which, which would bring me to, you know, the, the, the second, um, you know, Rav Zinger, uh, Rav Cook, and now, you know, the most specific and, and even predictable. I'm sure he doesn't even remember this. In fact, I'd be totally shocked if he did. But I remember when I was in Karambiavna, so at the time we did something which should absolutely be reinstituted was that three times a year there was a, a Gush Shalvim Karambiavna Shabbaton. Oh, wow. And, you know, that's that was so cool. Yeah, it was yeah, very, very cool. should be reinstituted. That's it so absolutely awesome. should be. Uh, and I know there are people who want to reinstitute it. It should, yeah. uh, it should be reinstituted. I would have so, loved that experience when I was in Shalvim. That's, yeah, that's so, so cool. I remember, and, and I again, I, I'll mention that he was giving the details that I remember uh, when, when we had the Gush Shabbaton, they had a, a very... Um, a very lax wake up, uh, you know, that was uh-huh. there. Um, and I remember asking, I, I don't know what his role was at the time, if he was just learning in the Kolel or if he was a dorm counselor officially, but uh, Rav Moshe Tarragon, you uh-huh. know, was around even then. And I asked right. him, what is, why? What, do they not care about chakras? Mm-hmm. And they, and I, I never heard, seen something so bizarre. And he, and I remember he challenged me and said, what would be the educational value in, in enforcing it correct right you know at this point you know where's that going to lead right and how's that going to help if your end game is getting everybody to chakras this morning then it's going to help immensely right. but if your end game is, is is anything but that then it's it's not going to help at all it's interesting because i remember when i first started in shalvim i was also surprised they didn't like wake us up right. they didn't care and right. not they didn't care but they they didn't seem make it seem like they cared even though really you know they cared a lot but they like you said they, they took the long long-term approach 
and uh, it's interesting. Yeah. It's certainly one of the reasons why uh, people who have worked on NCSY Cola will tell you that I, I do it in a joking way, and 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 I have not yet followed through completely. But I have, I've made the point that if I could if I could wave a magic wand and change something about the way we do things on NCSY Cola and the way that our community does things in general, it, mostly in private homes and you know in just households all across the the world, it would be to eliminate this concept of of wake up. Wake mm -hmm. up is an educationally bankrupt concept. Uh, right away, it shows a, a failed type of chinuch system. Right. Um, you know, there are- Because so, if you have to wake them up, then clearly then- That's you know, right. right. There's so many things that you are acknowledging when you have an overly aggressive or exaggerated wake up system. You're, you're, you're exaggerating that the, the student, the child either has no self-discipline or self-motivation right. on their, you know, then that entire construct is an externally- motivated one that that's not a uh, you know that's not a very good thing hmm. and and you know so the 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 fourth um and final that i would quote is i have a very dear friend who now lives in baltimore he's a dentist actually but one of the the, the great uh, insightful mechanchem that i know which means you could do you could do from anywhere at any time his, his name is dr ido lavi uh many uh nice. i'm sure many of the listeners are familiar with him and uh Really, really wonderful person. When he was a madrich on NCSY Kolo, which was the same first summer that I was a madrich on NCSY Kolo, remember we were having a a meeting about how to let the guys, you know, how we're going to make sure that the guys have have a good time and they have mm -hmm. have fun. Um, and I remember he said, in in a way, he's a very funny guy. And he said it with his his flair and his sense of humor. But he said, um, you know, they're going to be forty guys, six thousand miles away from home. With with clowns like us, super, right. you know, he said we should be concerned about how they should have a little bit less fun and what type <laughs> of fun they have. Not, you know, but it was such a brilliant psychological yeah. and chinuch insight. Meaning, stop trying to tell them, let them be, and you're, they're going to end up. If you could kind of just steer that in a little bit of a direction and give them the direction and the space for healthy growth, that that's great. That then that that's what you want to do. Right. Wow. Four amazing, amazing points. Would you say that those are the same piece of advice you would give for parents? Or some of them, I feel like, have a very good. So with, know, with the wake up, for sure, yes, but no, there is no, there is no single piece of advice, um, you know, that that for either one that is going to work. Also, a little bit of a cliche, but I, I think for parents, it's two things that are are related. One of them is the unconditional love and support without getting into the the gray areas of what unconditional means and what are the circumstances mm -hmm. in which something more more tough or or you know drastic needs to be in a general kind of more normal types of ups and downs you know just to make sure that that the unconditional love and support a child has to know that there is a place that is always there for him and always right. supportive of him right, right. that he does not need to prove himself or she does not need to you know, qualify for, you know, anything else like that. How, how does one create that feeling in their home? Is it explicitly said or it's more just like a, a general feeling that is? I think it has to be a more general feeling and, and talk is so cheap. I mean, right. you could do damage by saying it explicitly if it's not backed up by actions do in fact speak louder than mm -hmm. words. Right. And we create, you know, we create environments and impressions with every, especially in, in familial relationships. It's amazing what what body language? I remember when I was um, in some of my first parent teachers conferences, 
um, I would be, uh, you know, I would, I would tell parents to sit down and I would say, said a bunch of things uh, uh, that, that surprised parents from time to time. But one, one of the things I would say was like, oh, his body language is great. And they'd be like, that is such a weird thing to say. <laughs> you know, we, we've heard that he has potential, he's not living up to it. And we've heard, we've heard good, we've heard bad. We've never heard anybody comment. And I'm like, well, you know, like when you're in a, in a real, you know, dynamic type of, and you see that from a house and you know, how, how many relationships are defined by, by, by body language, right. just by, you know, yeah. <laughs> these little, little micro movements that you could pick up on. And, and that, that, that's really a response. I, I think related to the unconditional, well, I don't know if it's related or not. And I don't know if it matters if it's related or not. Uh, but, but patience is such a, a huge need, uh, you know, to have, mm-hmm. um, parenting and chinuch and the parent child relationship is is really a marathon and not a sprint and we're so quick to categorize to judge to you know the sky is falling and you know right this is this you know and and, and it, it's not it's not like that um victories are not like that defeats are not like that um there needs to be such patience and understanding of how things e- evolve over time um right. you know so i remember that, right before like right before i got married i was thinking to myself i'm like okay am i ready to get married and like part of, you know, get, being ready to be married is like, am I ready to have kids? And I was thinking to myself, I'm like the media that I want to make sure to really learn about work on is self-awareness, patience, because I feel like both a marriage, but also having, you know, children, like you're saying, it's, it's, it's the most important. It's, it's so, yeah. so important. Yeah. So. Yep. 100%. How, how old were your kids when you made Aliyah? Uh, we have, thank God, uh, six children and two children-in-law and two grandchildren right now. But uh, mm-hmm. our, our mm-hmm. original nuclear family uh, were six children, four of whom were, uh, were, had been born when we made Aliyah. Uh, one of them was a uh, three month old or, or four month old. Mm. Uh, one of them was, uh, you know, one or two or, or so. Um, one of them was four, five in that range. And, and our oldest, Israel, uh, had just finished um, first grade. Gotcha. Uh, that was the, the last grade that he was in in HALP uh, in Long Island when I was teaching in DRS. How did they, how did they deal with the Aliyah? So, I don't think it was much of a challenge for anyone but Yisrael. But Yisrael right. uh, yeah, no, and then that's a, that's a product of of their ages, right? Sure. Um, you know, so for our oldest in first grade, there there were definitely of elements of challenge that were there, um, but there are always going to be challenges. There are going to be challenges everywhere. I, I think we overrate sometimes the rules of when you can and cannot make aliyah. I mean, there are certainly situations that you have, just set your kids up for success. Um, and if you're not setting them up for success and it's going to be a disruption that they can't handle, that could be true about moving from, from New York to Los Angeles. And right. it could be true certainly about m- from moving from Chicago to Israel, um, you know, or, right. or something as, as dramatic as that. Uh, you, you have to make sure that you're setting up your kids for success. Um, there is an irony to the fact that one of the great motivators, and it, as it should be, one of the great motivators for making Aliyah is the quality of life and quality of chinuch that your children are going to have. Most people, and again, this is an irony. It's 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 strange. It's it's almost working counter purposes. Most people could simultaneously have the biggest motivator for their making Ali as their children, and the biggest thing holding them back <laughs> right. is their children. Right, right. Uh, and 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 there's room for both of those things to be true at the same time. But there's also room to say, you know, this is going to be a challenge, but this is in my child's best interest. I don't know too many people who make Aliyah because it's the best thing for them, even though it's horrifically terrible for their children. Right, right. Um, most, most parents wouldn't do that and can't do that and 
probably, you know, should be reprimanded if they did. That's not, you sign up to be a parent, you sign up for a little bit of, of self-sacrifice so that your children can, can thrive and be good. Right. So, you know, when you look at it from the perspective of, you know, even if this is going to be difficult and challenging, where's the best place for you to live out your teenage years? Where's the best place for you to grow up? Right. Um, you have to be able to, and I think that probably relates a little bit to the patient's point. You have to be able to withstand some of those degrees of challenges and think big picture what's going to be best for them. But uh, what were those challenges or what was it like parenting during their Aliyah or as your family was adjusting to living in Israel? Or I guess to put it slightly differently, what advice would you give to either new, new Olim or Olim who are, you know, maybe struggling a little bit with that for parenting? I think I think the question of what advice I would give would be would be very general and would apply to a lot of of situations. Sometimes we imagine that specific problems are more specific than they actually are, and that they require specific solutions when general solutions are good. The Shabbos table and good parenting and love and support and patience, the things we described before, are the chicken soup you know, for many, many a malady. It's not that a situation, first of all, like I said, the situations are not as unique and specific. You know, um, um, we, we got, you speak about good good eitzos, we got, you know, great eights uh, at one point from, from uh, happened to be both a Rav and a mental health professional who, who told us, he said, is when you encounter difficulties, Sometimes you're going to attribute those difficulties to this decision you made to make Aliyah and the, you know, the uniqueness of the Ramat Beit Shemesh where we've lived for the past 18 and a half years, right. the uniqueness and the unique challenges mm -hmm. of the Ramat. I mean, I'm a huge uh, lover and believer of Ramat Beit Shemesh, but it, it definitely has its challenges sure. also. Sure. Right. And he said, you're going to attribute the issues that are going on to that when they're not really that. Mm -hmm. They're really just the issues of an adolescent and really just the issues of growing up right. and really just the issues of growing up in, in your particular home, which has its opportunities and its challenges. Right, it's easier to children. scapegoat or blame. That's right, right, that's right. And there, there's a lot of that scapegoating that goes on. And that that's particularly important, not from uh, just you know an analysis perspective, when you talk about what advice would you give, the advice would you give is, is be a good parent and right. talk your kid through mm -hmm. the challenges that they're going to have without trying to come up with the magic ball solution solution to this problem that they have, which you might be misdiagnosing, um, you know, in, in the first place. Mm. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, that's, that, that's very, very, um, it's very, very important. Being that you, you grew up here in America yes, and you raised children more in Israel, yes. what would you say is the difference between maybe parenting or the culture? I mean, there's obviously a lot of differences in culture and lifestyle, but more so in terms of parenting differences between, you know, in Israel versus here in America? So first of all, there are trends that are blurring the line between the two. There's globalization in general, for mm -hmm. sure. And there's a, a an extremely unsettling and unfortunate phenomenon where America is, is viewed as the end all and be all for any, there are a lot of countries that are envious, of course, of America and Israel culturally is included in that. They may have funny ways of showing it sometimes, <laughs> like we all do when we're envious of something, right. but there's a lot of, there's movement towards imitation mm -hmm. of even some of the things that absolutely positively should not be be imitated. Um, so I, I wish the answer to your question was even more pronounced than what I'll describe in a minute, but what I'll describe in a minute is is in my humble opinion, um, or maybe not so humble opinion, it's, it's, it's very, very pronounced where some of those of those differences are. 
First and probably foremost, um, Israel, especially the Ola Anglo community, is marked by an extremely high level of idealism, which permeates virtually all aspects of, of Chinuch. That can create sometimes an unhealthy pressure, right. but it mostly creates a very healthy aspirational goal toward towards life. Um, there you mean are, like spirituality or just in general? I think the the type of person who makes Aliyah, and you're talking about a self-selecting group of people that make up your, you know, we neglect that point all the time. If you if you live in Renana or Yerushalayim or Alon Shvat or Beit Shemesh, you are surrounded by almost exclusively people who made this, you know, this massive decision to make Aliyah. Right. And, and, and who are those people? What types of people do that? Well, highly idealistic people who mm -hmm. are looking to, you know. Looking for more, looking for that. Correct, right. That's correct, that's correct. And, and that, that 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 permeates, that has an enormously, I believe, strong effect. It has an effect on our shuls, on our schools, and and right. on our homes, and sure. on our, you know, the types of conversations are different. And, um, you know, all of those, all of those things impact the chinuch that, that our children get there, and it, it's a, a big factor. I, I happen to think that it's ingrained into the Zionist ideal and to the highest levels of, of Chazal and, and Torah perspective, uh, on that, it's uh, it's an extremely important idea that I mm -hmm. I like to teach and I try to teach that the, the note well, you mentioned before the influences in in Chinuch. Uh, in addition to wonderful Rabban that I had in my life, and I mentioned Rabbi Dulitz before when I was in in MTA. So I had three. I was only in MTA for three years because of early admissions, mm -hmm. and uh, I had three world class English teachers. Um, uh, Miss Pearl Majewski was my 11th grade English teacher. Uh, she was uh, an amazing woman, a legend in MTA, um, who taught there for many, many years and an amazing person and an amazing teacher. I had Rabbi Dulitz as my English teacher in 10th grade. I spoke about him before. And I had Rabbi Moshe Rosenberg, who's an accomplished mm -hmm. author and, right. and wonderful rabbi um, and a rabbi uh, in Queens as well. Uh, Rabbi Rosenberg was my ninth grade English teacher. It's amazing that you remember. Uh, I remember because they all, they all had a big influence on me. Yeah, and I, wow. I've been able, thank God, to express that to all of them as well. Um, interestingly enough, one of the great things Rabbi Rosenberg taught me is that he was actually an amazing Talmud and Shamish for Miss Majewski, uh, who was, hmm. uh, Miss Majewski never married. Right. Um, and uh, and, and uh, Rabbi Rosenberg, I, I learned a lot about Kavod for, for Rabbeim, for mentors, from watching Rabbi Rosenberg interact uh, with his English teacher, Miss Majewski, yeah, who, cool. you know, it was very cool. So cool. Uh, I also learned some English from also, and happened to be <laughs> that Empty had a curriculum in the ninth grade uh, in our in our literature, in our readings, that was learning about utopian. Utopia, we learned, we, we read Lost Horizon, and we read mm -hmm. 1984. Everything that we read and everything we learned about in ninth grade literature was was utopias and, and dystopias. Hmm. Worlds that were broken and, were, you know, and, and, and that notion of utopia, I believe, is what Eretz Yisrael represents in many ways. It, mm. It's the land in which we're not supposed to settle. I know that's a, a terrible pun, and, uh, <laughs> right. you know, but we're not, we're not supposed to compromise and we're not supposed to settle and we're not, you know, we're supposed to live a life that is closer or as close as we can come to the ideals of, mm. of the way we are supposed to be. Uh, and there's some beautiful, beautiful statements in Chazal that that reflect uh, that that fact. Uh, right. It's something, and, and and I think that's one of the things that that relates to the chinuch and the unique chinuch in Eretz I'd like to tell you, and again, I'd like this to be more obvious and more pronounced. It's less so now, but there is a more wholesome, less materialistic, less right. superficial, um, and I think all those things are true also, and they enhance the chinuch. And and as far as a pedagogical uh, a 
you know, practice. And, and I, I certainly hope that this idea comes up and is elaborated on in, in whatever time we have left and some of the other questions that you have. But um, it, it, the Chinuch and Eretz Yisrael, generally speaking, raises the bar and, and really, really challenges students to do more than they think they're capable of doing. That's such a neat trick in the world of Chinuch. What do you mean to by do that? that. Um, expectations are a big part of You're it. You're saying specifically in Israel, though? I, I think they're better at it. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's uh, there's there's almost a sense of yayish of of abandonment and giving up uh, in what we believe in our in our students. Great teachers in great schools have an almost limitless confidence in two things: the thing that they are teaching and right. the, and the things that they are teaching. Right, right. Um, you know, the the people that they are teaching and the materials that they are teaching. And you th- speak about limude kodesh You speak about education in, in our Torah world. And and you realize what the how high those stakes are there. Um, show me a person who can't teach well, and I'll show you a person almost invariably who either has no confidence in Torah or no confidence in Jews or both. Um, and that's a terrible thing. Right. And in Israel, they tend to have a little bit more confidence in Torah and a little bit more confidence in Jews. And you see this in the in the Israel Sabra imagery and the, you know in the IDF and you know. Like Israel's a place where where they believe that Jews are pretty cool and, and are capable of doing great things. And there's a reason why it's startup nation. And and that even affects the Chinuch in all all areas of of, of life there. Right. And they have a confidence in the material. There are a lot of lot of teachers in America who will do anything but you know, you think about it the way I, I do a lot of of hooks and getting people interested, but I, I always point out to people, you know, if, if if you tell a funny joke or you speak about sports for a while and they say, okay, now let's start learning. Every student knows the difference between something which is meant to whet your appetite and get you excited for the main course and something which is meant, we got one hour, you're going to hate the learning. So if we could take one hour of learning and condense it to, <laughs> you know, less than one hour of learning, right, then right. won't you be happy? And, you know, right. isn't that a, mm. uh, isn't that a good thing to be able to do? Yeah. I hear you. <laughs> I definitely hear you. NCSY Colo is widely regarded as the most premier summer experience for high school boys how did you create that experience? You made I didn't it, create it. Well, I, how did you yeah, create? You made it. Yeah. You made a culture where it's cool to learn. I, how did you make that? It's it's amazing. I mean, I experienced it myself, and it was transformational for me. And working there as staff, I mean, I, you see it. It's it's amazing. How did you create that culture? Again, um, I, I I don't I I don't I don't. I don't agree with the phrasing of the question. And again, that's not, it's not, it's not humility. It's just historically, um, there were so many people involved and mm-hmm. I was not involved in the very inception. This will be God willing, my 30th summer. Wow. I've been there for quite a while and there haven't been that many more than 30, right. but um, uh, there have been more than 30. Um, but certainly I, 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 I've identified certain things that work there and tried to bring those things out and, and emphasize those things a lot of them, you know, we mentioned already. Uh, there, there needs to be confidence in the fact that that this excitement, this enthusiasm, this sweetness, this simcha, can be found in Torah. And and once you really have that confidence, then making it happen is actually easier. The hardest mm-hmm. step is having that confidence and 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 believing it. Rabbi Stephen Weil, when he was working with the OU, and and. We had an opportunity to speak about things, you know, many, many times. So I was talking to him about the fact about what different madrichim choose to teach in their chaburas. We don't, mm-hmm. we don't dictate what madrichim yeah. teach. I remember, give, I remember being so fascinated by that. <laughs> you know, we, so we give them a lot of leeway and flexibility yeah. for a lot of reasons, which we could talk about or not later on. And I was, I was lamenting to him that so few of them choose to to teach Gemara. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he said to me something interesting, which which I, I believe to be true, although not all of the time, but he said, show me a person who, who doesn't want to teach Gemara and I will show you a person, no matter how many hours he's logging in, in yeshiva or in YU or any other time, I'll show you a person who has never really enjoyed. Uh, if that person loved learning and was getting their own simcha out of it, they would uh, they would for sure teach it as being the remedy, but but mm-hmm. you know really not sure that anybody wants to, you know wants to wants to do this, um, wants to learn in that way. So that's a um, you know the, the, it, it comes a lot back to having that that confidence that's there. You have to understand people very well. Also, uh, it was important to us really from the beginning that people had the most fun and enjoyment and the biggest smiles on their faces throughout the day so that they can enjoy the learning and be in a context. Simcha breeds simcha and, and right. happiness breeds and enthusiasm breeds breeds enthusiasm. And sometimes you need that milsa dibidichusa. Sometimes mm-hmm. you need to right. enliven a person and put a smile on their face through another means. And then you can, if done correctly, channel that 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 into other things. So um, you know, that, that was kind of the, the deal that we made with guys in the early days of the program, you know, you give learning a chance and we will give you the summer of your life. And it was, it was a pretty good deal for everybody. And, you know, people want to like learning, they want to do the right thing and they want to get over that hump of not liking it. So if you give them a roadmap of how to do that, um, it's, uh, it's great. I, I used to say, and I still say in, in recruiting pitches for the summer, which is very relevant to your question of, how do you do that? How do you create that? How do you convince people of that? I said that if I was selling martyrdom, if I was selling this is the right thing, but it's it's not going to be enjoyable at all, right. but it's really, really important that you make the right decision, no matter how much Mesiris Nefesh that implies, uh, we would be very lonely in the summer. We would not develop mm-hmm. and we would not be, we wouldn't have transformative impact. Right. How many people are you gonna convince? And how many 16 year olds are you selling Mesiris Nefesh right. and martyrdom? It's not really a winning marketing campaign. Right. I mean, I know? feel like when most like kids, when they look at coal, they're like, wait, there's that much learning? Like, I can't do that. Right. But then they go and they they get, they not only do they see that they can do it, but they they literally, they develop a love for it. Yes. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And and the the effect of the madrichem, uh, in addition to the obvious effect and the quality of the rabbeim and the rashi yeshiva, but, but it's always been about the madrichem, you know, more than anything else. Right. And the reason why, you know, it's always the most sought after job when you're when you're in you know yeah. shalvin or whatever. Yeah. Like, how do you get that madrich position? For Listen, sure? we, we live in a world in which role models and heroes, and you know, whether it's 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 sports or an Avengers movie or you know, people have those posters on the wall, and people, mm-hmm. um, you know. Remember speaking again. This is such an obvious point, and and people know it. But um, there was a, a a regular fellow. He, he was certainly not a bad guy. In fact, he was a very wonderful guy. But he was not atypical in any of his attitudes towards religion or towards learning or, or anything else like that. Um, and he uh, he developed into an outstanding ben Torah and mm-hmm. Talmud Chacham. And he actually was one of the people we generally don't have a lot of people come after the ninth grade. He right. came after the ninth grade um, and and stayed for, I think he was in the program for all four years of, right. of his high wow. school, which a few people have done. And he was one of them. And and I asked him once, like, why, what made you do that, you know, in ninth grade? And he said, he said, I did not care for learning in Iota. I didn't care for anything, but I had a madrech who all I knew was that that's what I wanted to, really? you know, he said, whatever wow. he would have told me to do and whatever he would have shown me to do, I would have done. Wow. That's, you know, that's I was smart enough to know that this is, you know, 
I don't have any answers and I don't really know what's going to be, but I, I want to be, I want to be that. I want right. to be like that. So what do you look for when, like, it's all about the madrid. So what do you look for when you're, when you're looking for that right person who can be that role model? Simcha Sechayim is, is the number one uh, characteristic and attribute that matters a lot. Hmm. Nothing attracts people towards Torah like, like joy does and like happiness does, and, and that sense of fulfillment does. That becomes this, this potion that everybody wants to take a sip of and everybody else wants to be, be mm -hmm. a part of. Uh, and that, that's so, so critically important. You now know, everyone knows that if they want to get a magic position, they just got to come in, you know, really excited. Right. It, it works, <laughs> it works, yeah. it works. Uh, it certainly does. You can make people laugh, uh, you know, and you can make people happy. People, people are drawn to that in great, great ways. It, it, there's a series of other characteristics that are extraordinarily helpful in terms of being a great madrech, um, honesty, integrity mm -hmm. uh, matters a great deal. Substance, you How know, can not you being check a shallow person. Honesty and integrity before more with references than than in an interview. Interviews are often overrated in terms of mm -hmm. getting a sense of a person. Talented people can fake anything for <laughs> for a short interview, but integrity is not easy to fake in in the long haul. So right. you know, if people identify you as as having that, um, you know that that matters a lot. Generosity of spirit matters a lot. It's hard to be a good madrich, it's hard to be a good mechanech if you are self-centered and narcissistic and we live in uh, an increasingly self-centered and narcissistic right. society. Very so, true, uh, very true. So. How do you train the staff on call, the madrichim and all the staff really, the rebbeim, to help the campers connect with Hashem? So part of it has to do with what I, I would be a hypocrite if I gave you an answer that was radically different than the answer I gave you before about how you're mechanech anybody to anything. Um, so as a teacher to teachers, you want to get out of their way a little bit and, mm. and give them the confidence to, you know, to figure some, some stuff out. I'll tell you two, um, two kind of anecdotes or, or descriptive um, incidents that, um, that I share very often with our staff that, um, you know, that, that are, that are, you know, that are like this. When we developed uh and started to develop even more elaborate staff training models, uh, full weekend and all these days, you know. So I, I lamented, I, I was I was presenting after a very long weekend that started on, on Thursday morning, had extended Thursday afternoon, Thursday night, Friday through Shabbos, Moza Shabbos, and that was Sunday, we were having our closing sessions and I was giving one of the last sessions. Probably goes back like like twelve years, and I, mm -hmm. I I put away you know any of the notes that I had and anything I prepared to say, and I said I, I just want to tell you what a lousy weekend this was, uh, yeah. and they were they were taken aback because first yeah. of all they had had a great weekend, wow. and they were world class presentations, and we're we're really proud of our staff training. It's an amazing, you know, amazing experience, and we do some great stuff there. But I said to them, I I'm pretty sure we missed the entire mark because of this of this Rivzinger, you know, of Cook. I said to them in a slightly different way. What I said to them was. Um, I, I'm pretty sure we've impressed upon you an, an expert culture, and I'm pretty sure that mm. we have tried to, you know, kind of train you into submission into everybody else's ideas about about what you're going to do, uh, and you're never going to be a good educator like that. Interesting. Um, you 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 have insight. You have connection. You have an understanding of the high school, you know, believe it or not, you could be better than, than a Rosh Yeshiva. You could be better than a Rebbe who's been teaching for 40 years. If you trust yourself and you trust your insights and you trust what you're observing in a better way. And, and what I told them then, and I've repeated many times since then, is that when, when the program, you know, first began to develop, so 
I, I was a madrich in one of the early years, and I and all of my peers, Dr. Ida Lavi and many others, uh, we had obviously never been on the program because the program didn't exist when we were there. And we were when we were anticipating the next steps of growth for the program, uh, we were counting down the days into which a great high percentage of the staff would be themselves people who had gone through the program. And we assumed that the quality of the chaburas, the quality of the education and chinuch that went on in the program would go from you know A to an A++, so it, would right. just, it would just go to the highest and, mm -hmm. the, and the next level. And it didn't happen. Actually, we saw when we started having, um, when we started having many of our alumni become staff members, we saw the quality of the chaburas went down and not up. Yeah. And there, there were two theories to it. Probably both had a degree of merit. One of them was a little more cynical and one of them was a little bit more insightful into the way Chinuch works. And, and to answer your question about how do you train people and instruct people to, to be Mechanech. The cynical answer was that whereas before there were no quotas or protexia, no nepotism whatsoever that went into the decisions of which madrichim to take, mm -hmm. now that you're introducing the variable of are they alumni of the program, yeah, it stands to reason if you have 20 madrichim, you will have you know 11 of them that would have qualified under any circumstances and nine of them who are not necessarily the next nine best madrichim, but they were on the program because right. you introduced this mm. other variable. Interesting. But that's cynical, and I'm not sure how true that ever was, right. honestly, because I don't know if those rankings are accurate, and right. I don't know if you know if anybody knows, and it it presumes a little bit more omniscience than, than the people making the decisions mm -hmm. ever could have possibly had. The answer that I'm partial to, and I'm, I'm near certain that this is correct, uh, and it's not just because it's insightful or optimistic. I really think it is It is absolutely accurate and true. When people who were not on the program and had never been Chabura before set out to give a Chabura, they set out to give what they felt to be the best Chabura and the best way to tackle the problem of an uninspired uh, young man or an uneducated young man or a person who felt utterly disconnected to God, to Judaism, to our Messorah, to our history. But when people who had been on the program before set out to give a chabura, they set out to give the chabura that they had been in. Interesting. And it was it was a it was a stifling. It right, was right. a way you know, and and that was that was it's very. Like what you were saying before, like getting correct, out of the way. And correct. Like, it was very very detrimental uh, for them, and we had to untrain that. Hmm. Don't give some. You know, it, it was it was that people spoke in a voice that was not their own. Yeah. We do that a lot, by the way. Right. We, uh, yeah. You know, it's. Um, uh, we, we have voices that are not our own, that we, we break out in certain situations. And a lot of times we do that when we're teaching. You know, we right. try to channel somebody else, you know. Yeah. It's not, totally. the, not the way it's supposed to be. And shifting focus a little bit, how do you think parents can help their children connect with Hashem? Is that, would you say it's the same thing what you're saying? Or I guess to add on to the question, when a parent is having a difficult time with when their child is, you know, not connecting. So to just get out of the way, maybe that's the advice. Or is there something else that they can do in that type of situation? Yeah, I, I think those two, those two um, formulations of the question have different answers. When you're in a situation where you're struggling, it would be, um, I would recommend, you know, again, they're, they're, it's not simple situations, and this is so much easier said than done, um, and it's really, really hard to do. But yes, getting out of the way slash patience, two things that we spoke about before, is very, very important. When You're saying when you're having difficulty. When, when there's a struggle, when there's a difficulty. There. Uh, um, when there's no struggle, though. Okay, so we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but you know, just to give it, it's so hard to do that, but in other words, the goal can't be, I need to, you can't solve it right now. 
you have no choice but to be patient. You have no choice but to get, you know, right. you have to let it, you know, you have to let it so be hard. and you have to let it go. It is so <laughs> right, hard. Right. It's, it goes against so many of our, our nature. Right. Instinct right away yeah. is for a parent to be like, right. okay, what can I do? Right. right. You know, like now right. I did, especially there's the, 100%. You know, the, the, what they call the plow parent, the plowing parent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It doesn't mean hands off, you know, kind of, you know, do whatever you want and I don't care, but there, there has to be that balance and there has to be a sense of, of patience like that. As you started with, and, and as you just, uh, you know, kind of, kind of reiterated the question. So, okay, but you're not in a crisis situation. So what are the best ways to, th- th- there are no real hidushim here. Um, certainly not, not in the first aspect of what I'll say, but modeling, you know, belief is, is still, and always will be the best way to teach right, and communicate right, belief. Sure. You know, I remember I was, when I was teaching an MTA, so there was a, I had a student who came, you know, panicked to me and he said, uh, I have a cousin that I'm very, very close with and I'm by far the most religious one in my family. And he's the second most religious one in my family. But he just told me that he's done, you know, keeping Shabbos, what do I do? What do I do? What do mm. I do? And and I, I looked him in the eye, I asked him and I said, how how are you keeping Shabbos these days? Like, not that great, but that's not the point, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> I said, no, it is the point. There's only right. one thing you could do for him. Right. And that's to introduce him to a Shabbos that makes him curious and excited to be a part of. Now, if that's true for two cousins, you know, interacting, it's right, certainly true for, sure. for parents and for children. So it, it doesn't get much more, you know, complicated than that. The only thing I would add to that, and, and I'm a, a big believer of this with, with my colleagues in NCSY, and, there is a language of the soul. There is a language of belief. Sometimes it's the language of music. Sometimes it has to do with, sometimes it's, 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 a, it's a gentleness and a sensitivity in interpersonal relationships. Sometimes you could have a person who's just a really nice guy. And sometimes you could have a person whose nice guy is motivated by a clear sense of, mm-hmm. of Yira Shemayim, a fear of God, of right. belief. And th- there's a language, there's a language. And like we spoke about before, sometimes it's an unspoken language. Sometimes the language of, of motions and of, mm-hmm. but in other words, if, if the home is filled with the language of the soul, and I would, I would reiterate and emphasize that music is such a great example of the language of the soul. Are you of, saying like talking about Hashem or it's not, not that, it could be It could be more subtle than that. It uh-huh. should include talking about Hashem. But in other words, what, every, every community, every country, every civilization has their own language. Every house has its own language. Right. Um, and and the, you know, there are things that we speak about and ways that we speak about things. And there's a language of the soul. There's a dog whistle of the soul to give, uh, you know, maybe that's not a, an appropriate or respectful right. enough example. There is a dog whistle of the soul. There, mm-hmm. there are things that are being screamed and said that only the soul can hear. So if we say enough of those things and the soul hears them, the soul gets awakened and it gets animated within within a child, within a person. The same is true for adults. Right. There has to be, there, there's such a thing as creating environments that are conducive for <laughs> belief. There is such a thing as creating environments that are conducive for belief. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have to strive to do as parents. Is this a place that, it doesn't always work. And that's where the patience comes in. And you know, sometimes our best efforts are, are not gonna go rewarded, but we have to try. And to try certainly doesn't mean to lecture or to cajole or to force. To, 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 to do that means, you know, have I created an environment that is conducive for a belief? Right. What does that look like? It looks like inspiration. Mm-hmm. It looks like modeling. It looks like mastering that language. It looks like any so of those how, things. What about parents who, who are not attuned to that language? How, how can, what would you advise? I don't want to be too um, pessimistic or defeatist, but, but 
based on the two points that I said, they're in big trouble. Uh-huh. And that's why, honestly, why so many are in big trouble. Right, right. If, if you can neither model nor create an mm-hmm. atmosphere that is conducive for belief, you are absolutely rolling the dice on, on whether your children, and, and, and not dice that are stacked in your favor. Right, it's, right. Uh, it's, it's, it's an uphill battle. Yeah, it's true. That's true. What would you say are the unique challenges in educating and parenting today's teens, which, you know, you see both in Kolal, you see in, in, in Rashid, what would you say are the most unique challenges? Of today's teens? Yeah. I mean, besides for technology, I mean, I, I know technology is a big component. Yeah. But... Yeah. No, it, it, ha- it has to be, it has to be technology. Yeah. Um, although I, I mean, again, just to be different, I, I believe it's technology. <laughs> right. I, I do believe that I think there are aspects of technology. You mean like that social have media be, or yeah, other aspects? There are aspects of technology that have to be explored about which and why are the most, you know, are the most challenging. Uh, there, there are absurdly high levels of self-absorption that are fed by technology. Mm-hmm. There are absurdly high levels of shallowness that are fed by technology. Right. There are levels of, of intellectual dishonesty that are fed by social media and, you know, chat rooms and the, and the general discourse that are there. Um, all of those things are are enormous challenges. I don't know if technology is to blame, though, for what we spoke about before, which 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 would be, I guess, a slightly different uh, nuance and, and answer to that, which is just you know we, we've we, we've beaten down our children and and really taken away their will to aspire to be great. Um, there is a a real crisis of forfeiture of, of Salam Elohim and, and godless mm-hmm. Adam. You mean like confidence or, or more than just that? I would say it's more than that. Although, you know, confidence is, is a good start with it. Right. It's a, um, so how can, how can parents instill their children with the confidence or, or what you're talking about more? Reminding a person of godless Adam and Salam Elohim is not easy and it's not lip service, but, mm-hmm. but that, that's the only answer that you can do. You are more than that. You can be more than that. Right. You are a prince. You are, you are, you are a person of godless, of greatness. You can achieve, um, you know, you can achieve greatness. Right. You know, you mentioned before the re- main reason you went into education was to be able to help people. What would you say is your goal? Is that is that your goal as an educator? And if that is, like, how do you best accomplish it? Or, or is there a different goal? It, it, it's a pretty good articulate. I, I, have, I have more specific goals as an educator. I think there's estrangement and disconnect that many, many students feel from our Masorah and from Torah. Mm. Um, I, 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 I often mention to people, um, there was the first week that I was teaching an MTA, they had one of those features in the student newspaper, the Academy News, mm. uh, had a feature on all the new teachers and they asked them a bunch of standard questions. So one of the standard questions they asked was, was the one that you just asked, which I had never been asked before and probably had never even thought about before, but right. what are you doing here? What, mm-hmm. what, what is your goal here teaching in this classroom and MTA? So, so I said instinctively, which are so often the best answers, I said an answer that resonates with me, you know, now all these years later as well, which was that I'm, I'm here to convince people that they have a chilek in Torah, that they have an mm, entry point nice. and a connection really to, nice. you know, to Torah that's there. Um, and th- there is that disconnect. People are less sure of that than ever before. Um, I, I How think- do you go about convincing them that? By showing them that they can tap into Torah or is it, or is it more than yes. that? Yes. Yes. 
there are there are entry points. You know, you, you imagine yourself kind of feeling your way around this this sealed room or or an igloo or you know or even a, a regular you know storefront. You know, like okay, where where do you go in here? Right. And we have that a lot. We have that in our institutions. We have it physically in our institutions. You know, mm. especially now with anti-Semitism on the rise. You know, I travel a lot and I'm in a lot of different places. There's something unbelievably frustrating. But even more than the frustrating is the, sim the symbolism and how frustrating that symbolism is. Our shuls are all locked buildings right now. Yeah. Um, and you true. know, there are many a person who spends their time literally, physically outside you know, that building, right. hoping desperately for some point of entry. Well, that's the story of our, our youth, of mm -hmm. our children, probably for the past 30, 40, 50, maybe 60 and 70 years. Many, many of them have been, even when they're inside, sitting next to their parents in that shul, they have been outside, you know, desperately looking for any way in at any point. And, and that's tefillah, that's shuls, which are probably better than schools and the Olama Torah and a mm -hmm. daf gemara. These are extremely foreboding, intimidating um, practices and endeavors. We have to find a way to open up right. points of entry to that. Right. So... Shifting focuses a little bit. I'm sure on NCSY Coal or in Rashid, I'm sure there's been times or when you were in DRS or MTA, you've had to have tough conversations with either parents or children, students. How do you handle those types of tough conversations? You, you need you need confidence. You need honesty. It, it, it's um, because because people deserve that, and and it's your obligation to provide that for them. The more you equivocate, the more you sugarcoat, the more you're condescending, the more you don't have confidence in a person to hear the messages that they need to hear. Um, who are you to make those kinds of determinations and to deprive a person from hearing what what's the right thing for them to hear? Um, so, you know, th those are things that matter a lot. Treat a person with respect, even when you are delivering news that is uh, unwanted and, mm -hmm. and unfavorable. And you'd say the same thing for parenting also, meaning parents who are having a tough conversation with their children. Yeah, I, I think parents have an added obligation to be careful about which difficult conversation mm -hmm. that they have and how often they have them right, and is right, it actually true. necessary to have that. The, the lines are, are admittedly much more gray inside a house. In a school, it's fairly certain what you need to address, what you need to discipline, what you know. But parents and spouses, you know, have a very different type of, of mm -hmm. dynamic with right, that. Right. Talking about discipline, what is what's your approach towards discipline, both either in kolal type experience or yeshiva or and in, in, in at home as well? I I guess I would say this. Um, I think too many rules uh, become um, really really claustrophobic and and prohibitive. Mm -hmm. Once again, pun intended, but they become you know they really lock a person down, and it's not not a good way to be. However, the rules that that one determines are important. It discipline is not a dirty word. Discipline is so important. I mean, this is the beginning of Sefer Malachim and, and, and so many other sources in Chazal indicate that. If, if you love a person, you care about a person, you will be willing to discipline them. It's those to whom we are indifferent or apathetic that we, in, in the, the guise of some type of midas harachamim and overly merciful perspective, it, it's those people that we choose not to discipline. It's mostly not midas harachamim. It's mm -hmm. mostly not... Um, some type of of wonderful benevolence. It's usually just cowardice or or apathy and indifference. Interesting. That would cause us not to discipline. Interesting. Interesting. Tefillah, like you mentioned before, a lot of people just feel like they're kind of the, on the outside, and it's it's so hard. It's hard for adults. It's hard for teens. It's hard for children. What would you say is the best way to start to kind of get give that opening to tefillah? 
both for, for anyone, for, for parents to help their children with it or for educators to help their students with it. So it's interesting, again, um, I'm, I'm certainly enjoying the way you're formulating a lot of these questions. It's interesting that, that you said, what's the way to you know, create that opening, playing off some of the conversations that we had earlier. My answer to that might be different. Sometimes the process needs to be jump-started and sometimes you need to do mm-hmm. something which may not be the ideal long-term and, and thought, most thoughtful solution to a problem, but it's, it's what you need to do right now in order to, to like I said, jump-start the process or, or just to give some degree of confidence and build some momentum towards better tefillah. Ultimately, ultimately, in my opinion, and not everybody that I have spoken and debated this issue with agrees with me at all, uh, I believe that it is impossible to separate tefillah from emuna. Uh, if a person had a strong degree of emuna, tefillah would be, as the Arach HaShulchan uh, quotes in explaining the Ramban's shita of tefillah being dirabanan, uh, if a person believes in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he will, she will naturally have a form of tefillah right. to that end. That makes total sense. Uh, and if a person does not, uh, then they won't. So so if I was given, and I have been at different points, uh, mostly through NCSY, if I was given a grant of, of significant money and said, use this to have a profound impact on tefillah in schools, I would not buy Arts Girl Sidurim, and I would not invest in, in alternative minyanim, which is maybe for a different podcast at a different time, we could speak about, you know, okay, the, next next the, time we have you on, the pros and cons of, of those. Um, I, I, I would do my best to teach Amuna. I would, you know, there, there is, um, I, I, I often. I feel like that's very under studied or under taught. I think that's true in general. And it's certainly true in the context of improving tefillah. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it has to be that way. I think I, I I often teach this in my efforts to teach tefillah and to connect and to make this point. Dalif name miata omed is not a a prerequisite, nor is it a rhetorical question. Do you know before whom you are standing? Right. It is a real question, and it is a goal of tefillah, not a prerequisite for mm-hmm. tefillah. I think we make this, and and we're often trained this from a very young age. Take the gum out of your mouth, stand up straight. Do you know before you mm-hmm. were standing? Right. But if we took that not as a rhetorical question and the literature question, as a goal, do you know? Right. Right. Then it becomes the goal of what that tefillah is, and and okay, so let me utilize tefillah to enhance my emuna, which will then obviously enhance right. my tefillah, and you have this wonderful, you know, kind of spiral. That, so you that said, like, up. if you had the money for a grant, you would teach a moon. How how would you teach a moon to them? That that's a different question completely, um, and there need to be multiple aspects to it. There is certainly an intellectual, academic, um, you know, reasons for reasons not. You know, the the mm-hmm. debates about sure. God's existence and the like. And even if there are not absolute proofs, there are there are good indicators, and it's important to teach those. There is an experiential and an emotional element to belief, and there is a doubt element to belief, all of which need to be taught, explained, justified, rationalized uh, in ways that allow a student or us to process conflicting emotions and feelings and beliefs and to make sense of them in a cohesive religious identity. Mm. So, so those, those are the four things that have to be part of teaching and inspiring emuna. Much like we spoke about the home and how to teach emuna, that would be the experiential part of it. Can you can you introduce experiences that allow for these glimpses and allow for these these right. realizations? There is definitely an emotional uh, aspect to it, and then there is the you know the academic uh, you know intellectual 
aspect to it, which doesn't appeal to everybody. Frankly, the one that's most obvious, which is that academic, intellectual, teach emuna, what are the proofs and what are the yudgimali karim and why do we believe in this and who said this, um, that's the one that's least interesting to many right. people. You know, right. Uh, right. most people tune out as soon as you start speaking about those things. Right. It's true, it's true. What, would you say that that in terms of teach, teaching, not teaching tefillah, but helping children deal with tefillah and their struggles with tefillah, is that is it to take a role of trying to teach them tefillah or for parents, meaning to to try to teach them it, or no, it's it's more, you know, helping them have a positive tefillah experience, or like you said before, like talking about Hashem and. So again, I, I think talking about Hashem is amazingly important, and if you have a relationship with Hashem, if you believe if you believe Dalif if you believe you're standing in that room with God, davening to Him, is is easy. Right. You know, then then it makes but how sense. How can parents give that over? Because they're not. So like, we we spoke about that before by modeling it by creating uh, so atmospheres that are modeling. conducive uh, for uh, you know. Right, right, gotcha. Would you say that your chinuch approach has changed over the years? I hope so. How so? I hope so. I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, but God help us all, or you know, any of us, if, if the answer is no. Um, I, I certainly hope that that it has. I, I try. I try to be attuned to the needs, the lacks of of students all the time, and that that evolves and changes all the time. Certain things were were known, were understood. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember having a conversation on NCSY Cola with my you know dear colleague and friend Rabbi Yehuda Teretsky, mm-hmm. and he introduced me to a word which which many people know now, but I had never never heard of, and I was highly skeptical of. And, and the word was processing. You know, I said if mm-hmm. we have these big events, part of chinuch and part of teaching has to be to explain to people what they just saw and why it's important. And I, I think I laughed at him when he said that. I'm like mm-hmm. that that's the most you know, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> so who, funny. who has a dramatic experience or a meaningful experience and, and needs help. Pro- I don't even know what the words mean. <laughs> You're not talking about an inexplicable event. You know, had we gone through an, an inexplicable tragedy, we had seen a UFO or, you know, so, okay, so I, I need help in processing yeah, that. Right. But if, if I had an uplifting Tisha B'Av or, or a great Shabbos or, or you know, Rav Asher just walked into the room, Somebody needs to process that for me, you know? But of course, as always, he was 100% correct <laughs> and I was 100% wrong. You know, you'd ask people five minutes later what they saw and they would be completely incapable of articulating right. it. And because of that, 10 minutes later, they'd be incapable of remembering it. You know, right. it just, it, it didn't have, so right, somebody needs to say, do you understand what that was? And, and can you make sense of that? And can I help you do that? So that I would feel like be- that's a role that parents can also play. Like absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Is there an education or a parenting book or safer that you'd recommend? So I, I love the question because I get to get on a soapbox a little bit, <laughs> but I, I genuinely believe this to be true. Um, sure is the answer. There, there are lots of books that I you know, like, enjoy, and have learned from and gained from, but we have to learn as a community and part of that confidence in our Torah that the answer to that question is, is the Chumash, mm-hmm. Rashi, um, certain Kamaras. <laughs> no, I mean, no, you're the, right. You're 100%. We do such a disservice when we give any other answer to that. Right. Once we establish a society that says that that's for sure, and we're not kidding when we say that, that's right, actually right. the answer. Um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, there you go. Okay. Well, I want to first, first and foremost say that I personally gained a tremendous amount from your insights and really, really want to thank you again for taking the time out of your incredibly busy trip here 
to provide us with so many insights and inspiration for parenting and for Jewish educators alike. So thank you again. It was an incredible pleasure. I, I enjoyed the conversation immensely. Uh, looking forward to doing it again sometime. Yeah, I hope we can. I, there's like, I feel like there's so much stuff that we didn't even get to scratch the okay. surface on. So. Okay. Amazing. Thank you. Wow. That was uh, another amazing episode. Rabbi Benevitz is so insightful. I really gained a lot from this conversation. I really, really loved Rabbi Benevitz's take, his idea about tefillah stemming from Amuna. I remember years ago when I was preparing for Chabur, actually for NCSY Kolal, and uh, I was going to be giving some Chaburahs on tefillah, and I sat down to prepare, and everything I was putting together, it just kept coming back to the fact that how could I be getting this conversation, this Chaburah started without touching on Amuna? And really ended up getting to really talking about certain foundations of Amuna. So it was nice for me to see that I was thinking so similarly to one of the great Jewish educators of our time. I loved, I loved the mashal of rocket propulsion versus a helium balloon. Such a strong and important idea for education and parenting for, for education. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please like it. Please share it with your friends, family. Subscribe to the podcast. Give a rating on Apple Podcasts. And please keep sharing your amazing ideas and feedback with us. It's really so appreciated and it's so helpful to get your feedback, to get your ideas. Go to jeducation.org. You can give us feedback there. Reach out to us you know, on Gmail. Check us out. Check us out. We'd love to hear from you. And looking forward to another amazing episode next week.